We remember last week we are talking about the Revelation. We're talking about the book of Revelation. That's what we're looking at. Uh, and we started off with that, and, and we only got point number one. I don't know what you folks were doing that made me go to point... <laughs> didn't let me get to the rest of it. But nevertheless, uh, we're talking about the book of Revelation, which, again, I am falling more and more in love with. Uh, it's now a good competition with the Sermon on the Mount, but um, not quite there yet. When we speak about the book of Revelation, we need to understand this. And I'm going to go back just a little bit here. We're speaking of a vision. We're speaking of a vision. This is not a dream. This is a vision. Uh, John has written this um, not as a creative description of what he's seeing. In other words, he's not seeing something and then he's becoming Van Gogh and he's trying to do something uh, that's a little bit unnecessary. My preaching does that sometimes. (laughs) You should come for counseling. Oh my goodness. I I got stock in uh, Kleenex, you know. Anyway, it's, it's a creative, it's not a creative description. He's relating everything exactly as he is seeing it. So many folks want to say it's something that he's making up as he's going along the way. No, it's not. That's exactly as he has seen it. At some points, he is unable to relate what he saw. And I believe that the Holy Spirit's inclusion happens there in the writing to make it clear, as clear as possible, for a first century writer seeing something that's going to happen in the future. You know, people have come up with all kinds of things that are going, what, it's, what, what he's actually talking about. I don't know. I'm not going to say those things. But that's what they say. As it says in the text of the scripture, John was in the spirit. John was in the spirit. Obviously, spending enough time with God in meditation and spending enough time with God in prayer and spending enough time with God in in just receiving his holiness and just seeing him. That's what he was doing. Again, this is not a dream. This is not something that's uncontrollable and incoherent. John was extremely alert as to what was taking place. And and that's what I want to make sure that we make that point. And John is about doing what God has called him to do, and that is to unveil. Unveil the book of Revelation. Unveil God's last message, basically, to humanity. And wants humanity to hear this, because this is going to come. This is about to come. This is around the corner, so to speak. And then I took a little digression. We went to the book of Genesis and the book of uh, Revelation to see the correlation there. You know, we think of uh, what Jesus Christ has done. He's brought peace into our life. That's what he has done in his death and resurrection. He's given us peace because before that we were enemies of God and Satan brings death and destruction and hate and discord into life. That, those are the two opposite places to be. So why the book of Revelation? We gave you those reasons. We looked at Genesis. John writes to the seven churches in the providence of Asia. We're going to look at a map later on. Uh, Brian Rush got that for me and put it on there. I don't, I don't even know how to download those things onto my PowerPoint, but he took care of it for me. There are, there are cities that are left out. If you've ever been to Turkey in that area and you've ever done the, the churches and the seven churches, the tour there, left out Colossae, which is a pretty important church. Troas he left out, which is also another church in the area. And so why those seven churches? Why just those seven churches? And this is my, my belief, and, and I, I think it's pretty accurate, and we're going to get there at some point, that he used them as examples of what the church is today. That's what he did. He's using them as examples as the church is today. And therefore, as the church has been throughout the centuries. You've had some good churches, you have some bad churches, you have some horrible churches. You can't even call them churches. 
So who wrote Revelation? That's the next point there. And so we're going to get to that point. Who wrote Revelation? Well, turn to Revelation. It tells you who wrote it. It says in, uh, in uh, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which, gave, uh, which God gave him to show to his bondservants or his slaves, as the uh, uh, new uh, the legacy standard says, the things which must take place did it by his angel to his bondservant John. Very clear, it was John. Well, let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 of that chapter, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So John's mentioned again, and then we see in verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus Christ was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we see John mentioned once again. We see John, John, John. Now go all the way to the book or to the last chapter, chapter 22 of Revelation And look who is identified once again. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. So it must be John. But what John? Which John is it? Which John is it? Doesn't say the apostle. It doesn't say John the Apostle there. And you know why? Because it is John the Apostle. You only have to say that if you're a fraud. Trying to put yourself in there, you would say John the Apostle because you would want everybody to believe you because otherwise they wouldn't. If you're the Apostle and you live with and work with and walked with Jesus for three and a half years or three years or whatever we have there, and then you've walked as a faithful apostle for all these years, why do you have to make your announcement on Bill the Apostle or John the Apostle? You don't have to do that. Your time as that faithful person is enough. So that's my contention. He, he is the same author, okay, and most scholars, not being one of them, would say that he wrote the Gospel of John and, and then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. They, they have similarities in there. Not exactly alike, and some people contend with that. Not exactly alike. And, and the reason they contend with it, because the Revelation is a totally different kind of book. And so you would have different words in there, and you would have different uh, um, explanations and phrases and all of that kind of stuff. So it's John, the apostle. There's no doubt about it. Only that false apostle would ever put that in there. Now listen to this. John uses 278 explicit or maybe allusions to the Old Testament passages. 278 different verses. He's got these allusions there. There are only 404 verses in the whole book. And so a preponderance of Old Testament Allusions are used there. So it would be an Old Testament saint. It wouldn't be someone who was new on the scene in 95 AD. So it's somebody from back there. So that's, that gives you a little bit more uh, power behind all of that. This particular author had intimate knowledge of the tabernacle and of the temple ritual. He knew exactly what was going on there and how that was carried out. Folks, they didn't have any temple or ritual or tabernacle ritual after the invasion in 70 AD. So that was all past. So he's got some memory of that and those kinds of things. And then I turned to a real scholar, Dr. Robert Thomas, my, one of my professors. He points out that only John's gospel and the revelation call Christ the word. Now, to me, that, that sort of nails it, if you want to use that. Uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. And, and we know that that verse, 
But John 1, 1, and it says there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Then you get to Revelation 19, 13. And I know we're a little bit going all over the place, but this is just to give you a sprinkling of what this book is. And he said, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's the only place in the Bible that this is indicated, or one of the only. And so you have Robert Thomas saying that. Dr. Thomas also said this, and I can actually hear his words from heaven, uh, that there are other internal evidences of the gospel in the book of Revelation being written by the same person. The imagery that's used of the Lamb is the same imagery that was in the Uh, gospel of john when he uses the imagery of the water of life that's also used in the gospel and then he who overcomes i I love those words he who overcomes for any of you still in your sin still don't know jesus christ he can overcome that i don't care what sin it is he can overcome it Now, in addition to that, there are um, traditions that recognize John as the author, and and we can look at those. That's not truth, and I I want to remind you of that. It's one step away from truth, but not that far. Justin Martyr, he lived from 100 to 165 A.D. That's one generation after John. Guess where he lived? in Ephesus, where John happened to do ministry. And John did ministry there for, I think it was three decades. He gives testimony to John as being the apostle and to be the author of the book of Revelation. So we have that as as something that would be in addition to just the scriptures. Arrhenius frequently quoted the Revelation as written by John, the disciple of the Lord. And he also is in that for second, third century there. And and so he gives evidence to it. Now, there are some others that say, no, he didn't. Well, guess what? Those men have been declared heretics. So I'm not worried about using them. Point number three. Point number three. What was the date of the book of Revelation? You know, you want to know what you saw when you saw it, right? Um, We all have history. We all have history. And uh, it was like uh, when I took my kids back to where I used to live in Mount Vernon, New York, and I wanted to show them my house. Well, it wasn't a house. It was an apartment. It was a three-story walk-up. And we got there, and it was now a parking lot. Yeah, it was now a parking lot. And, and so my kids, being as smart aleck as they are, so which car did you live in, Dad? <laughs> I said the Corvette. <laughs> now, you want, to, you want to make sure you've got the right kind of dates. What's going on at that time? What's going on in the history of, at that time? Those kinds of things. So scholars give only two possible dates. Only two possible dates. You get the early date, 56 to 68 AD. Why did they pick that out? It's the reign of Nero. If you remember what Nero did, he started persecuting Christians. He, he started lighting them up, okay, uh, gassing them, I guess, and, and then lighting them up and, and lighting his city and then starting a fire and blaming it on them. You know, all of those kinds of things. He, he obviously was a, an instrument of Satan. And then the late date of 81 to 96 AD, which is the reign of Domitian. And, and again, there is persecution going on during that time period. Why does there have to be ter- uh, uh, persecution? Because the book of Revelation is trying to sell... Tell the people of God, yes, it's bad. It's really bad now. But this is what's coming. This is what God is going to do. This is what Jesus is going to do. Folks, can I tell you something? It's really bad now for you, this world. The hate. It's just absolutely despicable. But guess what? He's coming. He's coming. We look forward to that. So we have those two particular dates. Um, the circumstances, 
you know, tell us it's either one or the other. The early date cannot be. Um, and this is the reason why I came up with that situation that it cannot be is because Paul would have been ministering in Ephesus. And why would you need to write a letter to Ephesus if Paul is already there? So Paul was there, and it's a, and at that time was a relatively stable church. At that time, he leaves the church, he gives them warnings, and you see that in Acts. They could not be described as having lost their first love if Paul is still there and ministering to them. So that's one of the reasons I say that. In reality, there is very little evidence outside of Scripture for the early date. That, that's just somebody's, you know, hey, there's persecution, so maybe that's a, a date. That's about it. The late date of 96 is an incredible amount of support over and over and over again, both internally and externally. You know, you think about it, if it was 54 to 68, that's a pretty soon after Christ leaves and the church has already gone defunct in some places. You would think there'd still be some uh, life in the church and growth and all of those kinds of things and excitement about getting saved and those different aspects. Whenever you speak about the book of Revelation, you must speak about the different methods of interpretation. So we can get to that. Different methods of interpretation. This is what divides very good men today. Um. This is going to affect your premillennialism, your postmillennialism, uh, your amillennialism. Can I just give you a little story? I, I, I was once at a conference, and it was in St. Louis, Missouri, and we were in the Millennial Hotel. That's where the conference was. It was a, it was a Christian hotel, and, and, and they had, you know, Christian, everybody had to be Christian in there, right? Oh, no, I'm only kidding. Um, but it was in a Millennial Hotel, and a Presbyterian gets up. And he says, we're in the millennium. (laughs) It really didn't sell very well. But then a Baptist got up, the next speaker, and says, if this is the millennium, we're in trouble. So just realize, they they even have these jabs back and forth of what you believe there. But we're going to start first with the preterist interpretation. Just want to give you some of these ideas here. They, They... Interpretation, false bad interpretation, can add confusion. It adds disharmony to the church. Why would someone who has a poor understanding, or maybe a very good understanding of Scripture, but have this interpretation, and they've got to change things in their life? And I'm going to, before I even get there, pick on somebody else. Years ago, they had a debate between R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. Anybody else attend that? It was out there, uh, Sierra Madre, we went out there, and they had this debate, debate on baptism. Uh, And they have two totally different views. Here are two men who are deep friends. Even though R.C. is, is now in heaven, they were deep friends. They were close friends. And they had this debate, and and R.C. says to John, you go first. You go first. But if you use the Bible, I can't win. I'm serious. That's what he said. That's what came out of his mouth. John goes down, uses the Bible over and over and over again and nails the whole thing that, you know, it's not infant baptism. It's got to be believer's baptism. And, and R.C. gets up and he goes, you know, right to uh, outside of Scripture. And what the history of that his church that they believe that kind of thing and i'm going okay MacArthur just nailed that everybody in here has believes that we're walking out is it just a group of us i don't remember who i'm standing with and and i hear these two other guys talking boy did rc smoke MacArthur?" <laughs> and i and that's when i finally got the 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 thing you know when you have something already in your heart that it must be this way you're pretty stubborn. I looked over to see if he was Irish. <laughs> Folks, that, that is stubbornness when you are, when R.C. even gets up and says, I can't win. I mean, that's how he started it. And then he went to his chalkboard and he started writing all kinds of things, which, you know, just anyway. I just wanted to take a side 
preterist interpretation, this approach says the contents of Revelation are true. The contents are there. But says that everything in the book up to chapter 20 has already taken place by the time of John's writing. They say the book presents history, not prophecy. It presents history, not prophecy. That what happens in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 has already taken place. That's their interpretation. The problems and the persecutions related in 4 through 19 apply to what is going on in the early church. That's what they say. And this is the, 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 what nails it, folks. They say John's language is symbolic. It's symbolic. Now, again, I'm not taking a deep dive here. I'm just giving you an overview. Then there's the historical interpretation. This approach also understands the happenings of Revelation to be real. They agree that these actually happened, and that's a good thing, all right? And they say as well that what happens in chapters 4 through 19 are prophetic unfolding of church history of the apostles, from the apostles to the second coming of Christ. In other words, it's still going on. It's still happening to some degree. This obviously has trouble with the number of days because once you put the number of days in there, my goodness, how many centuries and centuries and centuries. This obviously has trouble there. That It cannot be taken literally as recorded in Scripture, so you're outside the literal uh, understanding. This interpretation um, actually hones in on and deals with the word Babylon and, and tries to make it big, that, that it is something that needs to be uh, understood. Now, I've heard interpretations of Babylon that it's Rome. Uh, I've heard that it's interpretation of, of it being the Roman uh, church. I, I, don't, I don't know how you get that from what we're doing here, but that's okay. We'll get there at some point. Those are just symbols. Babylon is a symbol. If you remember Babylon, that's where the Jews were taken and they were taken into captivity and they were there for a, a time period. Then there's the idealist or the, or the topical interpretation in essence, this is historical termination in different garb, just putting a little bit of change to it. Chapters 4 through 19 do not interpret exactly church history. This interpretation can also be called the allegorizing method. This method does not see anything happening in Revelation has to do with history, nothing to do with history, whether it be past, present, or future. In all three of these interpretations, they place the church in the midst of the tribulation. So if you're a preterist or um, uh, if you're a historical or you're an idealist, you're going to be in the tribulation. You're going to be part of that tribulation. Therefore, the church will have to endure the wrath of the Lamb. What? Are you serious? In Revelation 6, 9, uh, 17, it says this, For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The wrath of the Lamb on the church? I, I, I don't think so, folks. I don't think so. Scripture speaks of the church as not having to endure the tribulation. We can see that throughout Scripture. Here's one. Why don't you jot it down? Romans 5, 9. Romans 5, 9, it says this, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So we're, we're taken away from the wrath of God. That wrath that's going to be spilled out in the tribulation is not for us. There's another one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. But 1 Thessalonians 1, <clears throat> Paul speaks to this issue here and <clears throat> just in a brief two verses and he says this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how it, you turned 
to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's what Jesus Christ did. He's rescued us from the wrath that is going to come. Praise God. Praise God. Uh, look at 1 Thessalonians 5.9. 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God has not destined us, listen to this, He has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So those are just a, a couple of uh, ideas to throw at you that would help us to understand that this is not something that we are going to endure. We're not going to endure the, the wrath of God. Praise God. You think about it, where you are right now is pretty wrathful already, the things that are happening. Now the futurist interpretation. The futurist interpretation. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. I'm going to read it, and then we'll come back and look at it. Revelation 1.19, it says this, Therefore, write the things which you have seen. I might as well not do that. Write the things which you have seen. Guess what that is? He's to write down what he sees. It's pretty simple. The things which are. The things which are. Speaking of the seven churches. Chapters 2 and 3. All right? And then... The, the things which are to take place will take place after these things. And so he's writing the future. That's chapters 4 through 22. Those are the things that are going to happen in the future, folks. Those are things that have not taken place. There's no history to those things. We don't know what they are except through the book of Revelation. You can go back to the, the book of Daniel, go back to the book of Jeremiah. There are some places there that you can uh, uh, sit down and, and read and contemplate. Yeah, there are some things there. There is a picture, a little bit of a window of things. Folks, this is the only interpretation, and I'm going to say the only interpretation that holds the grammatical, historical, theological interpretation, the literal interpretation. This is the one that Grace Community Church, the elders of Grace Church, the pastors of Grace Church would look to as being the legitimate interpretation. But you say there are some things in the text of Scripture that are symbolic, and I do want to let you know there are things that are symbolic. And where they are symbolic, leave them as symbolic. Don't try to interpret what they are. Don't try to interpret something beyond that. There, this is the only method, folks, that's going to allow the Old Testament prophecies, the New Testament prophecies that are in Matthew and such, and in and First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, to be in harmony with the basic truth of God's word. Now, out of the futurist interpretation, three distinct groups of expositors emerge. Okay, that's what I, I, I've been saying there. They have the amillennialist, the postmillennialist, and the premillennialist. The amillennialist teach that there is no literal uh, reign of Christ on earth. In other words, the thousand years does not mean a thousand years. And so you can't um, listen to chapter 20 of Revelation. Uh, where it says there'll be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. If the Bible says it, I'm going to believe it. That's the way I've, I've, since I got saved. The Bible says it, I have to believe it. The problem is, can I do it? <laughs> Postmillennialist believes the kingdom of God is being extended to the four corners of the earth, and eventually, eventually the world will be Christianized. How are you doing? How, how, how's it going? That was believed very heavily before World War I, before World War II, and they were thinking, okay, we're going to be able to be Christianized, and guess what? It didn't happen. By the way, the Christian nationalists that I understand there's a movement nowadays, that is not going to bring back Christ any sooner, folks. Don't, don't listen to them. They don't have anything to say. They don't have anything of worth. 
The world is not going to be Christianized. Just take a look. I mean, I can give the gospel to somebody over and over and over again, and they just don't want it. Now, is that because God hasn't called them? Probably. Is that because they're stubborn and they love their sin? Most definitely. Who wants somebody to have someone else tell them what to do? Nobody. I think we talked about that last week or the week before. Now, when premillennialism teaches that the church will be removed from the earth at the rapture before the tribulation. However, there are offshoots of that. You have um, the rapture before the tribulation. You have then mid-tribulation. Have you heard that? And then you have post-tribulation. Now, I remember a question being asked of John MacArthur to Q&A during a shepherd's conference, and and, and one of the questionnaires said, but what if it isn't you, with the church being raptured before? He says, well, then I hope it's the men, mid-trib. And then, because you don't want to go through this thing. You know? And that, that's a possibility. There's also another one. It's called the pre-wrath rapture. In other words, before the wrath that I mentioned just before, uh, out of Revelation 5, 19 there, before that, rap, before that rap, um, uh, tribulation comes, we will be raptured. Uh, that is held by a uh, uh, name, uh, Robert Van Campen. Matter of fact, he was a very heavy supporter of the Master's Seminary. I mean, heavy supporter of the Master's Seminary. He, uh, and listen to this. And, and he gave that paper, that book, to our pastor and said, I'd like you to believe this. What you, tell me what you think about it. When John said, I, I, don't, I don't agree, he said, well, I can't continue to give you any money. Guess what? Didn't get any money. It's okay. It's okay. I saw, I saw the, the integrity of my pastor going through that because this man had given $10, $11 million or something to the seminary as it got started. So it, 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 was, it was kind of heartwarming to see the integrity of, him, of our pastor in that situation because so many other people would just cave and say, I I need to keep the seminary going. First thing here, Christ returns literally. That's what the premillennials believe. He returns literally with power and glory to establish his thousand-year reign on the earth. I'd like to take you to some scriptures. We're going to spend some time there. Uh, So if you don't mind going to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. And we're going to be going around at a few different uh, chapters or books and and trying to explain these various things here. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now will come about that in the last days, you see that, it says the last days, the mountains of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths and the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. That's a beautiful time. But that's after tribulation. Look with me at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2, 44. Daniel 2, 44. It says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. That's God's kingdom Verse chapter 7 
of Daniel, verses 13 and 14. You have the verses up there. I'm not going to do all of them, but you also have them up there so you don't need to jot them down if you don't want to. Notice where you know, premillennialism has all of those scriptures. I don't have any for poster. Uh, it, it, yeah, I can't put something that's not in the Bible. I could put down something else. Okay, here we are at um, Daniel seven thirteen and 14. I kept looking in the n- night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. Who do you think that son of man is? And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Could you imagine all of these different languages now can understand one another? I had a, an incident like that one time when I was in um, Austria. I was driving in a car that had plates uh, from the uh, Czech Republic because I was with our missionary. And uh, we got stopped by the police. And the police uh, were then came up to him and started speaking to him in Czech because he had Czech license uh, plates. Got his passport and started speaking to him in English. And I just kept sitting in the front seat saying, how stupid am I? I only know one language and not even well. (laughs) They know so many different languages in Europe, folks. But one day I'm going to know those languages. Praise God. Praise God. Number two, or B there, I guess we have it down as B. Prior to to this, the seven-year tribulation takes place. And we see that in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27. And this is the 70 weeks. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. Can you imagine that? Try to make an end of sin. To make atonement for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even uh, in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, it will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolation, and uh, are determined. Verse 27 and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, we will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And the, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So the seven-year tribulation takes place. We look at Jeremiah with me. Jeremiah chapter... 30. Going back just a little bit, Jeremiah chapter 34 through 7. And starting in verse 4, now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. I loved that when I saw that. I I have some people I need to tell that too. Because they don't quite understand that, do they? Can a male give birth? (laughs) You just wonder, where in the world are their brains? Why do you see, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. God has his guarantees through all of this, folks. 
Guarantees of what he's going to do. And, and I love that guarantee that through it, Jacob's going to be saved through it. They are going to survive. Here's the last one, and I'm going to go all the way to the end there, 2 Thessalonians, so that we can see that. I, I don't know how many years ago it was that I preached out of 2 Thessalonians, or 1 and 2 Thessalonians, but uh, kept advertising it that I don't know when the rapture is coming and people got all excited about it, or just a few people maybe. Um, but here we get a picture uh, of the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken uh, from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Folks, we are in the day of the Lord. It is the end times. Okay, when we talk about those things, it is soon coming. Paul saw it as immediate. John saw it as immediate. And, and you know what? Frankly, we should all see it as immediate. When I wake up in the morning, I'll go, okay, another day. But I'm, I'm looking, you know what? It, it can happen at any moment. At any moment. And we need to be ready. And I, I don't mean that in the sense that I need to get anything done in my life and except for repent of my sin. But one thing I do need to do is tell my friends. I've left letters for my brothers and sisters, you know what, just in case. You know what, I want them to, to, to see it, hear it. I think it's verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do we have people trying to do, not even people, but maybe governments trying to do that? Maybe monetary systems? I mean, all kinds of things. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless nun, one, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluded influence so that they will believe what is false. Do you know that happens? They're going to believe what's false because they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to have to change. Verse 12, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That's what they'd rather do. Folks, look around you. Do they take pleasure in wickedness? I mean, bringing in somebody who's not clothed properly into a children's reading room and, and prancing around, I mean, that is, you got to be out of your mind. And, oh, here, here, they take their kids in there and they let their kids be exposed to that stuff. You go, where is your brain? They should actually be brought up on child um, uh, endangerment. So that's premillennialism. I wanted you to get a picture of that. Again, we're not taking the deep dive, but the next thing is the use of seven in the book of Revelation. Now, some of this is borrowed. I stole it from this person and this person and this person and this person, but it's all borrowed, okay? Um, Look at this. We have seven churches. We have seven spirits. We have seven candlesticks. We have seven stars. By the way, when we got to seven spirits, I remembered hearing a message, and, and I don't often listen to Benny Hinn. 
I don't often, but once. Or maybe it was a, a YouTube that somebody sent to me. And uh, he said they were seven gods. And I went, oh my. Now I really know why I don't follow him. Um, but for a lot of other reasons too. Seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven thousand, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven vials, seven mountains, seven kings. As we know, seven is the number of completion. Why does the world follow a seven-day week? Because God gave it to them in Genesis. That's why. That's why seven is so important. Because God gave it to them. Genesis chapter 2. I think it's 2. Yes, Genesis chapter 2. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day and all his work which he had done. That's why we have seven days, and that's why it's so important. Next thing, uh, because I see we're running out of time, theological emphasis of Revelation. Without a doubt, okay, it is a book of victory, folks. It is God declaring his victory over Satan here. The emphasis in this whole book of Revelation is on God. God the Father. Yes, we do have the name of Jesus Christ mentioned quite often. His name is is in every chapter of the book and includes the name of God, His holiness, His justice, His eternality. Uh, Let's just give a few of them. Um, uh, Chapter 1, verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's just a picture of what He is. Uh, Revelation 4, 8 It says the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around him within uh, and day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the, the the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. You can look at 15.3 and 16.7. The first chapters do have Jesus as the central figure. But God soon takes over, God the Father. In 15 of the 22 chapters, John is mentioned, and he's mentioned as being on the throne. The one who is seated is the Lord God Almighty. And he's seated there, and he never leaves his holiness, his might. Folks, I I want to invite you, invite you for the future weeks that I get the opportunity to teach, to see what the future is. You don't have to go to a tarot card reader. You don't have to stop at somebody to read your palm. You don't, you don't have to have somebody have a feeling about what you, you should be doing or whatever. The future is here. This is what the future is going to be. There's going to be a, a study of God's perfect word. How do I apply this to myself? How do I glorify him daily in my work and my walk? Can I also say this? Although there'll be some strange and things happening here and it'll be sound like it's dangerous, it's not hopelessness. Our world is hopeless. Our world does not have any answers. There, there isn't something, a mechanism out there, the government, uh, a committee of people, or anything that's going to solve any of your problems. The only hope that we have is here in God's Word. It's getting worse. I don't know about you. I, I, I've been around a few decades here, and I'm looking, and I'm going, man, alive. I could never have dreamed that five years ago where we would be but it's going downhill and it's going downhill rapidly Um, and I think the more that you watch the news the more scary it gets the more hopeless it seems that's why you need to be in this instead of watching the news
You want to have hope, you have to have Christ. You want to have hope, you have to have Christ. He's the only hope that we have. And so as we uh, look forward to this study, which I am, uh, I hope you are, uh, let's join in and see what God has for us. Um, because I, I, I got to tell you, I told, I've been saying this, we're only going to do the first three chapters because then we're going to have the revelation. Uh, we're going to have the rapture. Yay. I'm going to. Yeah, we're going to have the rapture. And uh, that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. And um, may our church be found among those faithful churches, even here at the end, because there are some churches that are not faithful. Do you know churches are closing? They didn't make it through COVID. They didn't make it through COVID because they weren't faithful to God's word. Let's pray. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to show you a map. Thank you, Brian. He went through all this work. Thank you, Brian. Did you color it? And No, no. Anyway, what I, what I want to point out to you in this map here Look at how close the cities are to one another, and it doesn't matter how close they are. They could, some could be good and some could be bad. Now, when we did our trip to uh, Turkey and to Greece years and years and years ago, uh, we went to um, Ephesus, which is Izmir today. Uh, we went through a, a tour of that. We met. There was another tour group that was going to do all seven cities. And so I kept in contact with the guy because then we met him in, over in Corinth or, or Athens or whatever later on. And he said he would not do that trip again. Why? Because there's very little to see in those cities. Even when we saw Ephesus, there was really very little to see. All you see, you know, stones on top of stones, you know. And that, that's about it. You can talk about it. And not only that, but you're in Turkey, which is an um, Islamic country. You don't hear the truth. I, I, my, the, the tour guide and I got into words a few times because he wasn't... I said, no, 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 this is the truth. Anyway, uh, we went over to Patmos, got to like, take a look at Patmos, then went down to Crete, and then came back to, to uh, Corinth. And we had just a lovely time. If you want to do that part of the tour, that's great. But here are the cities. We're going to be looking at those cities in the weeks to come. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for your grace and your mercy in each of our lives, Lord. As we contend for the faith, Lord, May you uh, be blessed. May you be glorified. Uh, May your name be exalted on high. In your name, amen.